Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with entrepreneur and Renaissance man, Jeremy Gilbertson. Jeremy is partner and executive producer at Toon Welders, a firm that crafts sonic environments and audio experiences to connect people through music and storytelling. He's also head of music at Infinite by SUKU, a blockchain ecosystem and marketplace. He's a freelance fractional music officer who helps brands to orchestrate authentic music strategies and partnerships. The founder of Right to Know You, a program focused on self-discovery through journaling and coaching, and co-founder of One Love, an organization that fosters civil discourse on systemic racism as a means to increase empathy and drive change. He's also a technology consultant on data centers and IT transformation, and a freelance writer on interdisciplinary thinking, thematic interconnectedness, technology, health, and the creative process. He holds a bachelor's in business administration from the Michael J. Coles College of Business at Kennesaw State University, and it's a pleasure to have him with us today. So, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Shannon, thank you. Um, I don't know if you're a, a little tired uh, vocally from that from that, uh, <laughs> from that introduction. I'm just listening to it. I'm like, man, that's a lot of different things, I guess. Right. But, um, that's part of what makes it all fun. But thank you for the kind introduction. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, uh, I will say that it's people with the diverse uh, resumes who often are the most fun to speak to about innovation generally and kind of what they've done as innovators and entrepreneurs within Atlanta. So yeah, the breadth of industries and expertise is on display in your LinkedIn profile and, and uh, in that bio. And it's, it's pretty staggering, to be honest. And that's even coming from a guy who's had a pretty varied career himself. So I, I, there's something, though, in your evolution that strikes me as sort of organic. And, and what it made me think of is like a Nautilus laying down new chambers after a period of time. You seem to evolve into new areas of interest every so often. And there was a period early on when you laid down the foundations of all the data center and IT expertise and experience. And then a few years later, you started to build the music-related storytelling and consulting businesses. And more recently, you've moved into what seemed to be more personal projects around social justice, wellness, meaning. So I'm wondering if you would also say that your professional life has sort of evolved in stages. And how would you characterize the periods of evolution if you do see it that way? It's a great question. Um, and I probably wouldn't have known the answer to that years ago. Um, because a lot of what I've done has been very emergent. And um, I read a while back, uh, a guy, you probably have read some of his stuff, Cal Newport, um, the computer science guy, but also kind of a, a, a how we work, dedicate time to deep work, that kind of thing. And he talks about a concept called uh, career capital, which I thought was really interesting. And um, 
started to think about how it applied to, to what I did over time, because what I did was I would get into a, a role, I would expand on that role, I would learn a few things, and then I would move on to another opportunity that was tangentially related, but allowed me to bring the skills from what I did before, um, but apply them in new and interesting ways. So instead of, he, he's a proponent of um, not necessarily like find your passion, right? But find, um, find opportunities to do things that drive your curiosity and feed you. And when they don't, find something else that does the same thing in a different way. So I, I think there certainly has been an evolution to it. Um, as I was evolving, uh, I couldn't really call it a process. But now that I look back on it, um, I think there is an interesting, interesting through line between, between some of the things. So, you know, it seems like there are these sort of natural rhythms or patterns. Um, do you think that in this growth, you've tended to seek out new opportunities at sort of certain intervals or predictable intervals? Um, or is it simply that you're in a role until you feel like you've learned what you could and you're finding something else and then you sort of go looking for the next big thing? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that there was a pattern to it necessarily. I think, uh, I think certain key moments were driven by, by events. And, mm -hmm. you know, one event was, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later on the writing side, but I, I challenged myself I was in a, I was working for a consulting company. I had started Tune Welders. We were making music for ads at the time and um, kind of growing that. And um, I was having fun, but I was, something was missing like in this, in this full-time role that I had as an IT consultant, but I really didn't know what, what was missing and, and what was happening. So I decided to challenge myself to write every day uh, without expectation, literally move the pencil from left to right for 15 minutes. And the only thing that mattered is that I did it, not that, mm. you know, I was trying to write a blog post or an article or whatever. And a secondary aspect of that challenge is I would look at the five days of writing and I would form that into a particular insight that I forced myself to share with someone beyond myself, which is an interesting thing because you really start to critically think about something before you share it to a larger audience, right? So you're almost mm. forcing yourself into this process that I call synthesis, right? And once I started doing that, I started realizing that, oh, I was missing this thing, um, you know, because I wanted to explore XYZ. And this principle was important to me that I wasn't getting at this particular job. So that was a key informer for me to kind of know that it's okay to move and explore between different things. You know, we grow up in a very um, linear progression, you know, from, from when we're little to when we retire, we're on, I have an analogy that I call the conveyor belt. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're put on this conveyor belt where we're assembled by manufacturer date, right? Our birthdays and kindergarten, we check a few boxes and then we move to first grade straight ahead, check a few boxes. And before you know it, we're in high school, we're in college, we have our first job, but the mm -hmm. pattern doesn't necessarily change, right? So after I started talking to myself and writing to myself and forcing myself to synthesize these, these ideas, I started to realize that it wasn't linear, it was more orthogonal, like we could start looking in all of these interesting directions, or at least mm. listening, and being open to the signal that's out there versus charging ahead on one path that you have to decide and commit to for the rest of your life.
So, you know, this is an interesting conversation for a lot of reasons. One, you know, personally, as somebody who's reinvented his career a few times, I'm always curious about not only what my production date is, but what my expiration date is, because there are so many things that I want to still explore and do. Um, but I think there's something in here that's a bit of a lesson for students as well. And a big part of the audience for this show is Emory students. So I'm, I'm hoping we can address a related question that's, that's more for them. I think that students will often have a very set idea about the connection between their studies and their career. And they'll often go about their studies with certain professional outcomes in mind. But we always try to stress at the hatchery that what you achieve is less of a function of your major than it is of your ability to always learn and to apply what you know in interesting ways. I'm wondering if you could say a few words about your studies and what aptitudes you developed uh, during your time at school that you've been able to successfully leverage in your career. And then secondarily, to turn that around, what are some of the things you learned entirely or, or primarily or entirely outside of school that have been really important to your professional success? Great question. And I'm such a believer in the in in what you're talking about, about the the idea that, you know, your major doesn't define you, it defines your ability to move through a subject and identify what the passion points are, where your curiosity is sparked, and use that and find it in other means and modes and, and all of that. It's so cool. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was in school, candidly, I was a terrible student. Um, I don't know if this is going to help me with your student population, but just not because not because I couldn't do it, but because I was on the conveyor belt in the world of should. Uh, you should do this, Jeremy, because if you want to get a job with insurance, you should pursue this degree, right? And that's just you know that was reinforced in my you know environment, my my friends, family, you know, just the people I was around. And it's not a bad thing. I, I got through school. I did it. I uh, got my piece of paper that afforded me to get a job that let me start to explore these different worlds. But it wasn't until after school that I started, I turned into like a voracious reader. And, you know, reading everything from, you know, the classics to things about quantum physics and, you know, certain types of art and animation and immersive sound and all of these things you find have these through lines, but I didn't, I didn't find a way to ignite my curiosity or let my learning be driven by my curiosity until I was out of school and exploring things. Cause today I I'm super fortunate. I get to every day, I get to be driven by my curiosity and um, that helps me in every endeavor that I'm in. So it's interesting. You eventually found these through lines you speak about and if as a, a writer on all topics of interdisciplinarity and uh, you know kind of intersections of fields and, of, and of, of paradigms, that's certainly one place you've embraced that. I would say there's also, there are a couple other through lines that have shown up uh, in, in several of your career or several of your, your jobs. Two things that seem to really have held your focus now for quite a while, tech and music. And I'm wondering why these two and is there a through line between them? Are they more doing a dance alongside each other? Sort of how do you see that in relationship? It's interesting. And they do weave in and out like a dance uh, in, mm -hmm. a, in a lot of ways. Um, 
technology I just see is the, the grand amplifier of things. It's a language that, um, that is uh, important to understand, to know where we're headed and how we're headed there and what these little mechanics are going to do to markets, are going to do to opportunities, are going to do to financial systems. Uh, because the more you know about that trajectory, the more you can identify opportunity in that world. So that to me is why, why tech has been so interesting um, as, a, as a kind of a, a piece of a graph to follow to see where things are going in general. Um, tech and music have always um, interlaced themselves in interesting ways, um, in forced ways sometimes too. You know, I've, I was you know, doing these larger data center strategy or programs um, when someone has a, a large network, large storage, um, uh, framework, uh, a lot of applications, right? They have to figure out where to put those to maintain uptime and that sort of thing. So I would work with healthcare organizations. I would work with enterprise businesses. I would work with uh, universities to help them map out a strategy, you know, capacity planning, disaster recovery, um, and, and that sort of thing. And while I was doing that, I was starting up this music company. So really early on in my career, I was always like literally in these worlds, sometimes to the point where I would be, I would sit in a meeting. I'm like, all right, is this a music meeting or is this a tech meeting kind of thing? Um, so, so that's kind of how those smashed together, but it also turned into really interesting opportunities. I mean, one of my partners in TuneWelder is a gentleman named Jason Shannon. Um, and Ben Holst is another partner in that business. Um, Jason came up with a couple of really interesting things because he has a technology background. He designed large fiber optic networks for like city, city of Chicago was one of his customers at, at one point, just a brilliant guy, but he figured out how to play music between two different geographically dispersed locations over a network with sub 14 millisecond latency. And what that means is, Shannon, if you and I were playing music together, you had a banjo, I had a um, guitar, and we were 14 feet apart, that would be the delay we felt over this network. Um, so I say that as an illustration to, um, to say, you know, those worlds came together in a very unique way because I brought my background to the table with Jason's background, who is both musical and technical uh, to build out things like that. So yeah, that was a good instance of it. So it's interesting. Uh, I've spoken to a number of arts innovators over the years. We've uh, helped to coach a few students here who are really interested in using the arts for social change. Um, but relatively few of those people have been uh, deeply immersed in or uh, genuine embracers of tech. They're sometimes reluctant adopters. Um, but what strikes me is that you, you frame tech as a language, right? Um, you actually, you, you used, I think the words tech is a language and it also, the way you described it is kind of a narrative. So I wonder if that may be sort of part of why those things seem so organically uh, married for you, whereas for some people they aren't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I still, I still have a, I call it like a personal technological dichotomy uh, within myself because you know there are certain instances where I find myself, you know, attached to this thing and like, you know resetting trying to you know refresh my emails 
And I'm thinking, why am I pushing a button to add more stuff to my to-do list? Like, what is, why am I doing that? And, and the attachment to devices like that, um, I have to work really hard to maintain my space and my slack in the system. But there's the good side to technology, which, you know, what, what can it enable? What can it amplify? What can it make more efficient? But then there's also, you know, this, this other polar pole that happens where, mm-hmm. you know, we become so connected and entrenched that I'm looking at this instead of looking at you, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's, it's both that it enables bigger things and, and more granular things. It's that it pulls our attention to, to bigger questions, but it can also really distract us down to the nitty gritty. Um, speaking though, of then sort of finding that distance and carving out the space and time to do something that's more interesting. Um, one thing that sticks out uh, in your resume to me as somebody who's done a lot of writing is that your, your writing interests are as diverse or more diverse even than the roles you've held professionally. And so uh, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about why this sort of constellation of topics draws you in. So you've mentioned things such as uh, thematic interconnectedness, technology, health, interdisciplinary thinking, the creative process, among others. So uh, was it an outcome of the voracious reading that you described? Was it some mix of this intersection of tech and music? Sort of how did you arrive at this constellation of stuff? I think it was the voracious reading, but also uh, understanding it enough to where I I forced myself to write about it, you know, through this little time that I wrote and I would do longer form writing things that I would share on this blog experiment that I did. So much came out of that, that I I not only learned about all of these topics, but I also learned my personal opinion and position on them, which I think is, is almost more valuable than understanding something like, you know, understanding something like even technology, right? What is your position on technology? How does that affect what you do? How is it a guiding principle or a deterrent or whatever it is, having that personal relationship? And I couldn't have gotten there with all of that without the writing experiment. And Mm. thematic thematic interconnectedness and interdisciplinary thinking has, those two things have always fascinated me because the best thing happens in the space between things. In the little the little moments of undefined ether right that Mm -hmm. um that you don't know unless you know a little bit about a couple of the bigger things that surround it so i got down this rabbit hole i think i was reading da vinci's biography at the time and and one of the things i thought was really interesting i I think it's called sfumato it's the uh, one of his drawing techniques it's it's based in latin uh, fumo which is smoke and how he defined the figure by using the space around it uh, through this ethereal smoke, right? And I started thinking about like all the really interesting things that are happening in the smoky space in between things that actually help define the bigger picture things. So um, I mean, that's, that's fascinating for me to hear. It's uh, maybe another reason that the first time we chatted, I enjoyed the conversation so much. I used to, when I was teaching, get a lot of criticism from colleagues when they'd look at my syllabus and say, well, you're not doing any of the canonical works on this topic. And I'd say, well, right. I mean, if it's a canonical work, chances are it's dead center. And it's not going to let us to really 
start to form a bigger picture of how things are interconnected, right? And it's always the stuff around the borders and the boundaries that uh, those are the most illustrative cases. I remember we used to do a, with a colleague, a film noir podcast. And yes, we did some of the classics, but we also did uh, It's a Wonderful Life as film noir, right? So I oh, mean, that's that, cool. that is one seriously dark Christmas film. I, you know, most of it is really a view into the, the heart of human darkness, not, uh, not your typical holiday feel good kind of picture. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I wonder kind of on this topic of, um, of, of the sfumato technique and kind of uh, delineating the spaces around something to define the thing itself. I wonder if this is tied to, to your writing practice, especially as you've started to explore it more formally in something like Right to Know You. Um, it seems like we often define and know ourselves through the things we do. And I think that's especially true in this culture where when somebody says, so, hey, you know, who are you? It's nice to meet you. And you, you start to give a litany of, well, the, the stuff you do professionally, right? Americans tend to introduce themselves in terms of what they do. Um, and yet you're taking a different approach to getting to know yourself through this exercise that is at once structured, but is also able to sort of work around uh, the boundaries, right? So I wonder if you could tell us more about the right to know you approach and how it might be tied to this question, both the boundaries and the interdisciplinary thinking and the interconnectedness. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, the right to know you kind of came from a bunch of, you know, disparate things kind of being all smashed together. One, one other thing that I had done for a lot of years, I was actually a, a CrossFit trainer at a, mm -hmm. a, at a, at a CrossFit gym for, you know, five or six years. And I would coach athletes and there was a, a very, you know, kind of strict program every day. Here's what we're doing. There's form, there's technique. There's accountability because, you know, hey, Shannon, me and you are in the same class. We're lifting this thing. You're pushing me. I'm pushing you. Um, and uh, I, I learned a lot coming out of that world in how to take people uh, from a barrier that stands in front of them through that barrier or around that barrier in by, by helping coaching and, and, and talking and all that stuff. So I took that and I took this right experiment that I did on my own for a year and a half. And I kind of pulled together this program that actually, in my mind, it allows you to have these conversations with yourself, right? How often are you able to talk to yourself about, you know, really anything? I mean, you talk, you probably know your best buddy better than you know yourself sometimes, because, you know, when you have the ability to, to handwrite, number one, handwriting is a big part of the, the one of the pieces of the program. Uh, it activates your brain in a very interesting way and also doing something without expectation, right? What I mean by that is like, as I'm writing, I'm working very hard. And over time, this happens over time, working very hard to silence the, the little thing that's sitting on my shoulder that says, you're not a writer. What are you doing? You know, why, wh who do you think you are doing this thing? And, you know, navigating that voice and, and just finishing the writing. But by doing that, these little pieces come together in interesting ways. So there's the capture, there is the sharing piece. So the sharing piece to me is almost more important than the capture, right? Because if we have a group and the way we do this is usually in cohorts of, you know, 10 to 15, 
and it's a it's a you know a very uh, closed um, community, uh, kind of a safe place for everyone to kind of open up and and really foster that kind of environment for this. But after that weekly writing, you push out something for the group, and you go through that critical thinking process, that synthesis that allows you to really connect these dots through your writing. And then by sharing it with other people, you learn empathy because you know you're going to give someone. Uh, the attention and the and the care that they deserve when they post something just like you do for them. So uh, mm. I know I kind of rambled a little bit on that, but you know that's it's kind of how all of this stuff comes together. One one last analogy uh, that I'll mm. give you: we talked about the conveyor belt uh, and all of these little nuggets that you get out of writing and sharing and feeding this feeding this system. Is I realized you know how like airplanes fly, right? Mm-hmm. You get on a plane in uh, in Atlanta, and you're going to land at JFK in New York, and your ticket says one ticket says origin and destination. But throughout that whole flight, there are many waypoints all the way through the flight path that are check-ins from that that pilot to waypoints on the ground, right? So if we think of like how we uh, evolve and how we emerge, just like my career has emerged in various different ways. I'm not going from like, I'm not going from A to Z. I'm going from like A to A1 to C4 to, you know, F5 and then back on the main. I mean, it's more of this orthogonal thing in waypoints versus like this linear path. Um, It's really interesting to me how many people I speak with who are innovators and entrepreneurs who no matter what they're talking about, there's something in the either the, well, something in their process that is evocative of, of a design process. So the way that you describe journaling, the capture, the sharing piece, the critical thinking, the synthesis, I was reminded of human-centered design. Um, you know, you, you did like, the, the capture is almost like the discovery, and then the problem definition, and then the ideation, and then the, the prototyping and testing in a sense. But what's interesting is the end product in some ways is the empathy, which is often the starting point with design thinking. Um, it makes me wonder if some of why your recent projects have been so focused on like meaning and wellness are outcomes of that journaling process. You know, you could look at your resume and think, oh, somebody who started like a, a wellness initiative or a, a social justice initiative in the last year, you know, many of these has popped up because of external uh, concerns and reasons we've been seeing, you know, as the world changes. But it almost feels like yours is an organic extension of an internal process that you've been working through as a writer. It's observation, but I just wonder if there's anything to that. I, I absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. It, it was totally an emergent thing that once I got through it, or once I was halfway through the experiment, I did 80, I think 82 weeks of it personally. And I came out of that. I'm like, man, I learned so much about myself and so much of what I don't want to do and what I do want to do and how to engineer more of what I do want to do versus what I don't want to do. I was like, I have to share this with other people. Like I, I didn't come out and go, hey, I want, I'm going to be a wellness practitioner and I'm going to you know, start a wellness program. I just like took this experience that I had. I'm like, man, I need to like help other people because I hear 
people asking the same questions that I was asking myself way, way back, but they they weren't able to identify a, a way to come up with the answers. And, you know, I put this thing together. That's a kind of a five week thing, um, relatively low lift that, you know, I've tested it a bunch and the outcomes are just as amazing as the ones that I had. So um, it's, it's part of that to give back kind of thing and sharing a tool that I figured out for myself. So one of the things uh, that we always want to do on this show is switch from this question of, you know, the, the innovator, uh, him or herself, to the ways that the Atlanta innovation ecosystem is unique and shapes the sorts of innovations and innovators found here. So uh, in a sense, you just spoke to this with the idea that you're giving back, right? That you've done this work in this environment and you're now finding ways to share it back to the community. Uh, to help other people's uh, people to leverage this process. But I'm wondering if you could reflect uh, maybe more explicitly on that in the Atlantic context. Yeah, that's it's it's always cool to look through um, the the Atlanta lens on um, on art and innovation and intersection and and all of mm -hmm. that stuff. I think I've always uh, been connected in interesting communities uh, around around town and the music world and the art world and the tech world and the VC world. Like, um, but you know, like I was in high school when I, and it's funny, I just thought about this, like in high school, I didn't necessarily have one group of friends that I hung around with. I would kind of like mm -hmm. would parachute in all of these other pockets and they're like, who the hell is this guy? And, you know, I would just hang out for a bit and then pop out and go to another one. And um, that's kind of what I've been doing in town. And they're just amazing uh, little pieces of the puzzle that are around. I think what would be interesting is to figure out how we could connect these uh, these separate disciplines a little bit more under the creator realm or the innovator realm. And I, I did an experiment. I'm again another experiment. Um, but I did a I did an experiment a few years back where I put together this dinner, and uh, it was a hundred person dinner. And uh, basically, it was like a kind of a curated event where I grabbed people that did really interesting things in Atlanta in their realm of expertise. So we had like, I think, you know, uh, Elton John's engineer was there, the uh, Monica from Living Walls was there. And, you know, there were a couple of tech innovators and, and we would orchestrate these tables. We had 10 tables. Mm -hmm. And at each table, just to make sure it didn't turn into an eighth grade dance where all the music people were on one side and all the tech people were on the other, we, we orchestrated the tables to make sure there were all the different disciplines at the tables. And we did it at the castle, which is uh, right by Woodruff. Mm -hmm. That was just such a cool little venue. And this was like five or six years ago. And the output of that, like, I, I was like, I was blown away by the power and the energy and the just the discussion that was happening at this dinner. And I wanted to continue it. I wanted to find a way to replicate it, but that the, the time thing came into it um, and mm. just being able to do something like, like that again. But it would be really interesting to see some sort of interdisciplinary catch-all for people to come together and share crazy ideas. Like the, like the old Vienna coffee houses back in the mm -hmm. day where the mathematicians and the symphonic composers would come together and just talk about whatever, right? And unpack it, but it's not a first level conversation. It's like a fourth or fifth level conversation. So anyway, uh, I don't know if that makes sense or was even an answer to your question, but. 
Yeah, no, I think it was. It, uh, it reminds me too, yeah, the old salons, right? Exactly. Um, that you get just great minds from various walks of life in one place and give them the environment in which to have the time they need to really start to think through big questions. Um, so here's a question for you, because you're somebody who's done this sort of work before. What it sounds like time uh, for orchestrating this sort of thing is an obvious lift, but what other barriers are there? And what do you think ideal solutions might look like in order to create more of this kind of exchange of ideas? Is it something that universities need to be fostering? Is it that we need new types of like civic third spaces uh, or is it something else? Yeah, I don't know that like a new space needs to be created. I think it could rotate uh, between spaces or or mm -hmm. whatever. I think the big lift is like the the administrative side, the logistical side of it. Um, I think mm -hmm. enough of us, um, you know, thrown into a group could come up with like interesting talks and topics and, you know, ways to kickstart the conversation. And then even think about this, like, what if there was an output? What if like, this entity could be harnessed and directed at social causes, right? So, you know, you have this outsourced creative innovation group that gets pointed at things in really interesting ways. I mean, I think there's all kinds of ways to frame some interesting stuff about it, but it's, 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 it's hard to plan and it's hard to organize mm -hmm. and it's hard to get the word out. And, um, but uh, yeah, I would, I would definitely lean in to support the mission. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't lift, I couldn't do the lifting anymore, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Well, so let me uh, pick up uh, one thread of that last answer too. You spoke about bringing together people from music, art, tech, and other industries who are real thought leaders in their industry. One of the things that Atlanta faces, which is an interesting quandary, is that it is a world leader in so many different industries and even in different sectors. And as a result, sometimes it doesn't get the attention it deserves in any one sort of area. Like if you say, you know, Silicon Valley, everybody knows what you're talking about. So what do you think are some of those industries or sectors where Atlanta really deserves a, a broader uh, world recognition for the role that they play? And are there things that we as innovators in this community can do to help elevate that profile, whether it's something like the sorts of events you've just described or something else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, some of the industries that are, that are continuing to get um, the attention well-deserved, you know, uh, FinTech is, is big and, you know, the payment mm -hmm. processing world is, is pretty big in Atlanta. Um, the, like the film and TV area would be interesting. You know, it gets a, um, there's a lot of energy around it and we're, mm -hmm. we're doing projects in that world uh, as well. But, you know, I think getting in that world, the challenge I think is the, uh, the LA challenge, right? Um, people come here, they shoot and they get great incentives to shoot, but they've got 20 year relationships uh, with composers, with uh, editors, with, you know, and, and some of that stuff is changing, but I think that world would be a really good opportunity for some leaders that are creating that content 
maybe even the showrunners and and the and the writers to be like, hey, there's an ecosystem here. How can we elevate it? And people are doing it, but I mean, it'd be interesting to see it a little bit more. Makes me wonder too if those two could potentially come together because so much, uh, so many of the challenges that the media world is facing now. Yes, there's the creative, uh, you know, weight of a place like Los Angeles, but there's also the the sort of disaggregation of traditional distribution. And there may be something between the uh, payment gateway, payment processing and FinTech side of Atlanta and the media industry that's a, a big future opportunity for the city too. When I hear you say those two together, it makes me wonder. Mm -hmm. um, so let's change gears for a second from Atlanta innovation to innovation itself. And I think there's a common misperception or misconception that innovation is all about the big idea, right? The aha moment. And so many people will say, oh, I'm just not an innovative person. When in fact, so much of the work is really about process. So I wonder what you see as some of the biggest keys to success in practicing innovation. And if we were to change that question to focus on the entrepreneurship specifically within the world of innovation, would that change your answer at all? Good question. Yeah, I think I think innovation is um, innovation is certainly like closely tied to creativity and the creative process. It's it's creating something new or creating a new version of the found elements of an old process to make them better. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know. I'm a big believer in, in the value of crazy ideas. Um, so the idea side of the fence to me is interesting and important, but you know, the, the, the best ideas are usually cross pollinations of, mm -hmm. of things, the space between things that we talked about earlier and just being able to listen to those without judgment. It even goes back to the writing without judgment, right? The best things come out of your brain when the voice over your head's not, you know, cursing you the whole time. So mm -hmm. I think, I think being open to the signal that lies within all the noise is a, is a really powerful piece of innovation. If we don't listen to the potential that's out there, it's hard to connect the dots. Um, process, uh, you know, an idea is as only as good as its execution, like you referenced, right? Mm -hmm. So over the years, I've certainly gotten better at, you know, taking these crazy ideas and chopping them up into testable little iterations that I could just throw out there. That's why I did the blog thing and that experiment a while back. I didn't even know what it was going to turn out to be. My wife is like, why are you doing this? I'm like, I don't know. We're just doing it and see what it does. And sometimes you got to do that. But also on the flip side, you have to know kind of when to step back, right? And say, ah, this isn't working or it's not it's not as fun anymore, right? People get mm -hmm. so attached to ideas and you put so much energy into the ideas and you work so hard and it's not really a good idea, but you're so invested in it that mm -hmm. you can't let it go. So there's gotta be a, 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 an eject button that you're comfortable with pushing and knowing that you're not a failure just because you gave up on this one version of things that you put together, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It's like the intellectual or cognitive sunk cost fallacy. Right. Totally. Like even forget real sunk costs, uh, you know, the sunk cost of intellectual capital. Um, I'm wondering if there are any particular innovation processes that you have found to be particularly useful. And given that you work 
in so many different fields, do you always sort of find an interdisciplinary approach or do you find that sometimes you vary your process in function of the type of work you're doing? So for example, are you more agile with IT and more human-centered design as a writer? I think my process is very similar uh, no matter what I'm doing, I think. Um, I haven't always been able to be the observer of myself in, in, in all of those situations, but uh, I think I always tell myself, I feel like I'm running through the same thing, even though the inputs and the outputs might be different. The machine is the same. The innovation machine or the creativity machine um, is, is kind of the same. Um, the little bet thing is, uh, is what I've learned uh, most recently where you know I avoid the sunk, the the cognitive sunk cost, like you said earlier, you know, I, I think back to an idea I had a long time ago, that was a, um, it was a food hub. Back when uh, food deserts were like a huge topic. And I had a really good friend of mine that um, grew up in English Avenue, and, you know, was very passionate about getting good healthy food in those areas at a at a at a decent cost. So we like, we locked in and we we put our heads down and um, you know, we got the corporation, we got this, we got that, we did all of these administrative things and we brought in partners and we're doing design. And, you know, the guy from, I had a dude from Starbucks, one of the lead designers for Starbucks was one of our buddies. So he was doing the design and we had all this stuff put together. And then we looked at each other like, how is this thing going to operate and how's it going to make money and how's it going to do all of these things? And we just got so far down the road and wrapped around the axle of just, you can get pulled into momentum, right? And it's like, you're in momentum, you're knocking this out and things going, your chest, chest is puffed out. And, you know, before you know it, you, you've got this thing built that you don't know what to do with and you don't know that is even doable. Um, so I don't know if that rant made any sense, but. Uh... It did. It did. And, you know, the momentum thing is such a double edged sword, right? Because you want to achieve that momentum when you're on the right path, but you don't want to get going before you've really identified whether you're solving for a real problem or you just love an idea. Um, right. So I wonder, you, you mentioned a bit that, you know, the creativity machine remains the same. And so I wondered if you could tell us about a time when you were able to really set this machine in motion to create some kind of broader, more systemic change, either within your workplace or your world around you that you're really proud of. And then secondarily, if there's still something that you want to solve for, and I'm going to just make that our last question. And then uh, I want the audience to be able to leave comments and questions uh, in the chat as well, so we can get to everybody's questions. But so two-parter to end with, you know, so were you able to apply this creativity machine and, and do something you were really proud of? And is there still something you want to apply it to, still something you want to do? There's always something I want to do. Uh, <laughs> I think is, uh, you know, little seeds of ideas. I've got, you know, got the notebook full of all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff and, you know, trying to figure out how I want to, you know, tackle this or that. I think the one thing that I'm most recently proud of, and, you know, we're just going back to this Right to Know You program. I had a really good friend of mine, a guy named Sean, uh, that I've known since high school. Uh, he's done some amazing things in his life, but now he's doing he's doing this thing where he basically, he's an advocate for his favorite people. That's literally what he says his job is, right? And he finds people he believes in and he kicks him in the ass to get 
things done. And he, I, I talked to him about this, uh, this idea for right to know you a while back. And he's like, why aren't you doing it? I'm like, well, I haven't really thought, well, write an outline and get it to me tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And he took me through a machine, right? It wasn't necessarily my machine, but it was his machine. And before I knew it, like in, in like a week and a half, I had a website, I had a payment platform and I had 11 people signed up for the first program that I ever did. And I'm like, wow, that was really cool. And, you know, I, I'm not going to, I mean, I put work in and I did it, but like he helped me through that iteration of the machine. And I think the machine is, is different for everything that you do. Um, but that was a most recent experience of a process in the machine that was kind of co-authored uh, by my friend, Sean, that I'm super grateful for. Um, and then to apply that question looking forward. So different ways, different forms of the machine, different ways you can apply it. What is sort of one big thing that in the near future then, let's narrow it down a little, uh, you still wanna sort of tackle? I think um, to me, the, um, just the, the, the topic of systemic racism to me is, uh, is, is deep in my, in my being uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but over the past year, I, uh, I have a neighbor, Rafiq, um, wonderful man, good buddy uh, that, you know, we're about the same age. And when a lot of the stuff started happening earlier or in, in uh, 2020, that it was just a reverberation of stuff that's happened over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we looked at each other and we said, hey, we had to figure out how to do something about it. So we just started having these conversations, these live streams, unpacking history that um, that not many people were aware of related to the, the 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 confirmation of systemic racism. A lot of people don't think mm -hmm. it's there. Um, mm -hmm. So that is one thing that I want to continue to lean into. I want to continue to enable through storytelling. I've got some ideas and partnerships with a few um, great writers that uh, are telling these stories that need to be told? How do I bring those to life? How do I get people to just uh, let their guard down a little bit and you know mm -hmm. acknowledge the truths that are out there um, to to help explore it in a in a productive way? So that I, I think that's a, that's one of the big things on my mission um, over the next couple of years. Mm. Uh, well, we've had one good question come in from the audience. Uh, this person says, thanks so much for sharing your experience and creativity with us. I found the way you described the importance of technology as an amplifier and paying attention to what can get amplified as a way to spot opportunities. How do you sort through all the many opportunities to decide what you might want to actually pursue? That's a great question. Um... I have, uh, I have for myself, and again, I don't mean to keep pointing back to this writing experiment, but so many things came out of it. One of the things that came out of it were a set of guiding principles for me um, that, you know, helped me allocate my time. And some of the guiding principles are, you know, provide stability uh, and opportunity for my family would be one. Build cool things with inspiring people is another one. And just a, a lot of these, I think I have seven or eight of them. And when I see an opportunity and I see something out there where five years ago, I would jump on it just because it sounded fun. 
now I have a bit of a filtration process that allows me to say, well, how, how important is this? Because there are only 1,440 minutes in every day and I'm sleeping eight hours, there's 960. So, you know, how do I make the most of those? So I've heard the, you know, hours in the day, but the fact you've got it down to 960 usable minutes, that's, that's a whole different level of uh, focus and attention. 82,600 seconds, I think, if my math's right. Right, give or take, right? Give or take. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I'm uh, sort of obsessed with mechanical watchmaking, and these questions come up all the time, right? The nature of time and how you use it. And, uh, you know, a watch that's 99.99% accurate, it's going to lose a minute a day, right? So as we engineer our solutions, we have to be thinking in terms of real tolerances. Uh, so that's an that. interesting, interesting way to think about it. Um, so uh, one last chance here. Uh, I another question coming in from the audience. Uh, so I loved how writing is a way for you to actually get to know your point of view on a topic. It's bold to put that process out for others. What do you think are the keys for creating an environment where people feel comfortable putting out in-process thoughts on different topics? It's a great question. Uh, the environment is key in setting the stage and, and curating the right group of people, uh, almost like you would a, a mastermind group in a way. Mm. You know, make sure they're like-minded. Make sure the energy they're putting in is going to serve the group. Um, mm. You know, I, I think I think that's really important to create the uh, the rules of a of a safe space like that because you know it's not really it, some of it's in process, but the idea of the daily writing is something that you don't share, but like the synthesis of that daily writing you put out, which allows you to think a little bit more, but it's definitely a, a careful setting of the stage on the front end to make sure all of that stuff is enabled down the road. Interesting. Uh, so one more that's come in, once you get underway with an endeavor, how do you establish metrics and check-ins for yourself to see if it's worth pursuing? That is, what kind of personal KPIs do you use to decide if you're going to continue? I'm working on a better system for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, that, uh, so it, it goes back to, it still points back to the, the guiding principles that I have for myself. So as long as mm -hmm. those things are relatively being met, another one is like, am I, is my curiosity uh, sparked by this endeavor? Am I excited about it? Um, but like KPIs of like, Hey, I want this thing to do X, Y, and Z in a year or in 18 months, I'm, I'm working at getting a little bit better at that. And I think that could even make the machine even better. Uh, so I'm guessing that as a filter, am I curious about this topic is not one of your most useful filters. There's a good chance, a good probability. I'm guessing that you're going to be pretty interested and something that's yeah that's pretty funny yeah there <laughs> there i mean there's always a perspective even a perspective on a topic right if you look at it from another angle um you know like you know looking at a bug from the view of the grass right is very different than looking at a bug from the top down like you could even spin things around but you're right mm. you're right like that would <laughs> i need i need to maybe find a better gate <laughs> well, so it's interesting. One thing that you said uh, recently stood out for me as a way to maybe kind of start to think about tying together this conversation, because clearly you've been working in many fields. Uh, you have diverse perspectives and approaches to a lot of the work you do. 
But something you mentioned in terms of the writing piece is that you have to be open to the signal that lies within all the noise. And it feels like you've sort of pulled that signal out as a through line of today's conversation. I wonder, is there anything else you would like to say by way of conclusion to sort of uh, tie that together and, and, uh, and give us a clear indication of what that signal is? Yeah, I think, um, I think the idea of um, slack in the system does not necessarily make you a slacker. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm gonna point to another book um, called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Mm -hmm. um, he was the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer. He was a chess champion, push hands champion, and had this methodology for learning things that was super interesting to me. And um, one of the biggest points was creating space, uh, creating mm -hmm. slack in your system, time to chase down ideas, time to think about things instead of packing your day top to bottom full. Like, you know, there were years ago when I was in the, you know, IT sales space, you know, I, I was, I wore my full schedule as like a badge of accomplishment, you know, racing from planes to businesses and cabs and meetings and, oh, I'm so busy. But at the end of the day, I wasn't, what was I getting done? You know, what was I doing that was of any meaning to me versus meaning to other people? So I would say um, the signal to noise bit is, you know, slack in the system is okay. You know, having mm. 90 minutes in your day to brainstorm, to read, to think, to connect dots, to just get out of the conveyor belt methodology, I think is super important. You shouldn't feel bad for making that time and space for yourself. That's great. Well, it has been a really fun conversation, Jeremy. I hope we'll get to continue it. Uh, if you ever want to drop by the hatchery and talk more about uh, ways that we could potentially collaborate on some of these bigger cross-industry events and uh, sparking more of this, this kind of thinking, uh, systems thinking in Atlanta, uh, we're all ears. But until then, best of luck with everything you're doing. Uh, I really want to hear more about Right to Know You and how that works with groups as you continue to build it. Uh, and, uh, you know, just keep us in mind. We'd always love to have you drop in and share your progress and your insights. Uh, I, I'd love to, Shannon, and, and such a great uh, conversation. And, and, you know, it's so nice talking with someone that uh, comes from the same uh, kind of diversified world and uh, the space between things. And when I say things like that, you know, it's nice to not, you know, get cross eyes, you know, it's nice to be like, oh, I totally get that. So I mean, I knew, like I said, Shannon, when we first talked, I knew uh, we could stir the pot together. So I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, thanks to Ben for coordinating as well and uh, look forward to continuing the dialogue. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. To hear additional episodes, search Might Could Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about The Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.